In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's the first verse from the Gospel of John for you fedors out there who don't know. Um, what does that even mean? Word. The Word was with God. The Word. What? What? What is Word? We're going to talk about today. This is going to be an episode of Not Related. Go to notrelated.xyz for the other episodes. Um, we're going to be talking about a, a little bit of biblical theology, but really in a wider pagan context. And that is to say, I'll, I'll go ahead and say there's this idea out here um, that a lot of people have. It's sort of a Varg-tier idea. And it's the idea that uh, you know Christianity, in some senses, was an interloper in Europe. It was this strange alien religion that came here and radically changed everything. In reality, I want to talk about the Stoic backgrounds of Christian Christian theology. And uh, I, I guess how Christian theology has to do with Neoplatonism and Hermeticism and some other things. I want to mainly focus on Stoicism in this video. I think it's most important because the Gospel of John in many ways, um, although it has some other elements in it, I mean, th this you know, this first verse, in the beginning was the word, does not make any sense in the modern context. One fact of life is that, you know, when a thousand or two years have gone by, the, the mental, the, the way that people think has utterly changed. And this is something, in order to even understand this verse, which you hear a lot if you, you know, go to church or read your Bible, uh, it, it's something we, that no one, I, I feel, has a good understanding of. So we're going to discuss it. Now, first off, that verse, in the beginning was the word, that actually is a of course, an obvious parallel to Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, but let's discuss what this actually means. Now, word, the word word here, in the beginning was the word, um, that, of course, now the New Testament was written in Greek, and the word in Greek for word is the word logos, okay, L-O-G-O-S. And that is one of those words, it's one of those concepts that defined Europe for over a thousand years, and now, especially since the Enlightenment, has been totally lost to time. Um, the word actually originated in, I guess you could you could call Stoic philosophy or really proto-Stoic philosophy. Uh, you know, Heraclitus uh, may have coined the term. But let's actually talk about what Stoicism is. Uh, because in many respects, it's important for understanding the Gospel of John because uh, Jesus as presented in the Gospel of John is actually the perfect Stoic man. He's not just the incarnation of the Logos, which is the most important Stoic concept, but he also represents it in his moral behavior and how he acts perfectly. Okay, so what is, what is Logos for Stoics? Well, the idea behind, well, Stoicism, what's the pop idea? of Stoicism that you probably heard of. Now, a Stoic person, if you use that in normal life, a Stoic person is one who, let's say something tragic happens to them, okay? Uh, they don't overreact. They don't uh, cry too much about it. They might not even, they might seem not to even care. A Stoic person stereotypically is someone who does not react to something that's terrible. And in the same way, they might not react to something that's really good, okay? You might get them a great present that they might even really like, but they probably won't react that much. Uh, that's what Stoicism is. Uh, but that's Stoicism in the popular parlance. The Stoic philosophy is a little bigger. Uh, than that. And behind it all, again, is this idea of logos. What is logos? What is the word, so to speak? 
Well, logo, the idea of logos, it's related to words that we have like logic and logical and stuff like, stuff like that. It also sometimes is translated as speech or logic or, or other things like that. But what, how you might want to gloss this is logos is the rational order behind the universe. Okay. Um, and a Stoic believed that everything that happened in the universe, even things that seemed like luck or chance, uh, or things that you didn't expect, all of that is part of the rational order of the universe, part of Logos. And a, the ideal behavior is for someone to be consistent to, to uh, it, not that, it's not that they don't care about what happens, but that they can accept what happens in the world as this is, has been an inevitability. This was something that was going to have, have to happen. And a wise person is one who, uh, I guess, comports his moral behavior in that direction. Okay. So, for example, let's say we're talking about ethics. Okay. Or, you know, more, what, what is moral behavior? Well, moral behavior is behavior that is not going to have drastic, sometimes unexpected outcomes, right? So alcoholism or drug addiction, uh, obvious ones like, you know, uh, if you're philandering or something, those are obvious examples of behaviors that in many ways go, that, well, go against logos uh, in the sense that they, there's a rational order to the world. And if you try and subvert that for your own temporary enjoyment, it's actually going to end up biting you. Um, so that, that's stoic behavior. So a, an ideal stoic person is one who is constantly thinking about their behavior within a, a wider context. Um, not only are they ready psychologically when tragedy occurs, um, but they also, uh, they, they also realize that they're actually part of something bigger than themselves. Now, Stoics thought of, now, if you compare this to like Aristotle, okay, so Aristotle had the idea that basically everything in the universe has an individual goal, okay, so, you know, the common example is, let's say you have a book, or, well, the, you know, the word for goal in Greek, or it's a little bit different, but it's uh, telos, okay, T-E-L-O-S, so if you see that, you know, if you hear people talking about that, that's what that means, so let's say if I have a book, and I, um, you know, drop it from my hand, its telos is to hit the ground, okay? It has this sort of, it's moving to its natural place, which happens to be on the ground. In fact, most things built into them is some kind of goal to do something, or they, they have some kind of potential energy, as we would say nowadays. Um, and that is not just in, like, their physical properties, but their, their um, individual people might have individual goals. Now, Stoics do not believe in this necessarily, okay? What they believe is the universe as a whole. The universe as a whole is a giant interlocking system, okay? That interacts in complex ways, ways that we cannot necessarily see. But that system, which is often deified, like the Stoics often talk about Logos as if it is God, as if it is one, um, uh, like, unifying universal principle. But that principle ultimately has a telos. It has an ultimate goal. And from our position, we can never actually see that goal. Okay. That's not something that's going to be very um, obvious. Okay. So one little book that I have here um, is a book by uh, Jeffrey Bardzell. And uh, now this is not necessarily just on stoicism, but I like this book. It's called uh, Speculative Grammar and Stoic Language Theory in Medieval Allegorical Narrative. Now, we don't care about medieval allegorical narratives, uh, but for our purposes here, it's an interesting book because I think the guy gives a fantastic um, uh, view of stoicism in the introductory chapters. It's actually very, uh, very nice.
uh, very nice. So, you know, he opens up with a good uh, catch line. He says, in Alain de Lille's uh, plaintive nature, de plantu naturae, his leading speaker, Lady Natura, bases much of her argument against sin in general and homosexuality in particular on the claim that both amount to bad grammar. Okay, so that's a funny way to start his book. But to Stoics, logos, as I said, it means the rational principle behind the universe. But it also means something sort of linguistic or, or grammatical. Obviously, the, the word is translated as word in the Bible. Um, and it also has sort of the meaning of speech. And the, uh, the, Stoics, had the uh, Stoics actually had a, a pretty complex... Uh, you know, really they invented grammatical theory in the West. Most of the original documents have been lost to time. We see, we have a bunch of medieval commentators on the original documents, but a lot of the, the original Stoic grammar theory has been lost to time. But their view ultimately was that uh, language itself, logos as it is spoken language, represents this rational order behind the universe. And uh, to speak well or to, um, you know, to use language consistently is actually to represent logos. Uh, and in the same way, you know, as this exa example of sin being bad grammar, right? In the same, you know, in the same way that bad grammar violates logos, so does aberrant uh, sexual morality or, or uh, you know, any kind of sin. All of those are rejections of logos, okay? Um, now, at the same time, I mean, well, how this, uh, as uh, Jeffrey Bardzell actually sums it up, I'll sum up the, uh, I'll read his summary of, uh, this is on page, I want to say 16 or something like that in his book. Or no, actually, no, I think it's on like page two of the introductory chapter. Um, he says, he boils it down to a couple of points. Okay, one, the cosmos is guided by a rational principle, the logos, which ensures ultimately a providential nature of the universe and that all that happens within it. Two, the sumum bonum, that's uh, the highest good for you Latin let's out there, is to live in accordance with that rational principle, though we have to understand the cosmos to do so. Number three, language maps isomorphically to reality. So to study language is to study reality. However, as time passes and humans degenerate, the relationship between language and reality becomes increasingly distant. Four, Bad grammar leads to mistaken ideas about reality. Misunderstandings about reality lead to false, uh, lead to false assents to impressions, and false assent in, uh, in turn causes unethical behavior. And five, grammar and ethics are linked in such a way that the deficiencies or strengths in one imply deficiencies or strengths in the other. Now he goes on in this book a little later, around page 16 or so, to say, all things are bound together. Uh, through a complex and interconnected network of causes, which is also how the Stoics define fate. Okay, so fate is not just some, uh, you know, magical stuff that happens because the gods want it to happen. It's actually just part of the interconnected system of events we don't understand. Okay, um, I'll, I'll continue this quote. Uh, it is on this account that luck and chance are excluded from the system because everything has a cause and all causes are ultimately connected. And the cosmos is rationally governed Nothing can happen by chance. So if you actually want to look at this now, I know I've started to say that this is sort of the background to a lot of, uh, you know, early Christian theology, specifically the Gospel of John, which I quoted at the beginning. Um, you know, John actually in his gospel has several stories like this, like in John, at the beginning of John chapter 9, uh, actually I, I suppose I might as well just read it out to you. 
Um, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be manifest in them. And then Jesus goes on to heal him. So this actually gives us, you know, to the question, you know, why, why do unexpected things happen? Okay, well, Jesus gives the answer here that, well, unexpected things happen so that they can be dealt with in a, a way that shows, you know, logos, that shows the glory of God in some sense. Okay, um, now a little later on, I'm, this is, I'm going to go down into Bardell's book on the next page. Uh, he says, um, if all events are caused within the great network of a divinely ordered cosmos, how can humans take responsibility for their actions, good or bad? Now, this is a good question, right? So if everything is working according to the plan, God's plan, however that is, um, in the, whether in the Stoics view or I, I suppose in the Christian view as well, um, you know, how, why, why should we, do we really have free will? Do we really uh, have the choice of going along or not? Okay, uh, so Barzdell says this, the Stoics answer with a metaphor, okay? Imagine a dog tied by a rope to a, a moving cart. If the dog moves himself along willingly with the cart, it will be more comfortable for him. But if the dog does not go willingly, the cart will drag him and he'll go along all the same. The key point in this doctrine is the notion of assent. For the Stoics, living in accordance with logos means above all assenting to it which means recognizing and embracing events from the standpoint of the Logos rather than from the standpoint of one's own position. Now, that can mean two things. First off, there are many things that happen uh, in the world that you don't have control over, okay? Just things, good or bad, that happen to you that you can't really do anything about. But at the same time, you also have your own behavior, you know, your own ethical actions. And again, to do some, to do commit sin, uh, either in the Stoic view or in the Christian view, that is something that uh, is a rebellion against Logos, and that's just going to get you in trouble. I'll continue. For both traditions, Stoic and Christian, the guarantee of a rational and benevolent cosmos means that any conflict between what is good for the system as a whole is by definition good for the individual. Likewise, human vice, conceived as a misguided and unnatural self-assertion, both goes against the cosmos and is self-negating for the individual who commits it, okay? Um, so this is the view we get in, in uh, Stoic philosophy. Now, again, when John opens uh, his gospel, okay, and he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, stuff like that, and he di- then goes to say that the universe is created by the Word and stuff like that, he's actually talking, uh, this, of course, is a, a non-translatable concept, but he's talking about logos here. That is, there is a rational order that God implies, uh, in, in uses for these purposes. And the Gospel of John goes on to state that Jesus is the incarnation of the Logos. And this might sound like gobbledygook to modern ears. What does it mean that Jesus is the Word and the Word became flesh? That sounds a little, I don't know, it, it sounds outdated. Whatever it means, you know, this meaning is lost. But that's a very specific claim within um, not just Stoic, but wider pagan philosophy at this time. Okay, so uh, when we look at the example of Jesus's life, you can you can really see two themes. Okay, now Jesus, of course, gives a lot of parables and other stuff that we can talk about. But um, the two, I I guess, venerable aspects in the eyes of Christians of Jesus is first, he is uh, morally perfect. 
okay? And of course, this is good for Stoicism, like he does not commit sin. And this is good for Stoicism as well, because Jesus represents someone who is not given to vices. He doesn't, uh, you know, he, he isn't, although he is tempted on many occasions by the devil, uh, you know, we have the event of him in the desert tempted by the devil to take control of the world and when, when the dev, devil offers him the kingdom of the world and stuff like this. Um, uh, but although he is tempted, he never falls prey to any sin, okay? At the same time, uh, Jesus has, uh, especially at the beginning of John's gospel, okay, very quickly we're told, actually in the second cha- chapter of John's gospel, that Jesus knows that he is going to die. He knows that he is going to be crucified. Um, and this is something that comes up repeatedly in the gospels. You know, it was all part of the plan, the whole uh, crucifixion and death and resurrection of Jesus. That was something that he knew from the very beginning. So this actually gives the I, I guess the Stoic ideal, not just in moral behavior, but in terms of not ambivalence, but uh, uh, preparedness for unfortunate events, okay? Um, because although, you know, we as normal humans, right, when bad things happen to us or might happen to us, that is something that might significantly change your behavior. Uh, but of course, Jesus, in the example of that John presents in his gospel, although he's highly aware of his eventual crucifixion, He's utterly emotionally prepared for it. I mean, if we want to, if we want to look at the Gospels, so let's say Luke chapter twenty-two. There's actually a memorable passage you may have heard of if you went to Sunday school, where uh, Jesus is praying. He's he's about to be captured. He knows he's going to be captured by Judas, who is betraying him, and by the Pharisees and all. And he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, or I think it's the Garden of Gethsemane in in Luke. But anyway, either way, you can look it up. But it's in Luke chapter twenty-two, and Jesus is. So nervous, I mean, well, I sh- maybe I shouldn't even say nervous, but he is concerned for his future. He knows what's going to happen, um, that he, according to the gospel, he starts sweating blood or something that looks like blood. And this is chapter 22, verse 42 through 44, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was as if it were uh, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So he says, of course, although he's going through the suffering, it's not that stoicism does not mean being a psychopath. It doesn't mean uh, not... Uh, you know, being involved. I mean, obviously you're going to have reactions when something bad happens at some level. But uh, what Jesus presents, of course, is that although he knows that this is going to happen, he ultimately goes through with it because he, he knows it's part of Logos. It's part of the plan, right? And although in this, he you know, again, he says, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Um of course, in John, uh, John 18, 11, he says, uh, put up thy short, when Peter, of course, pulls out a sword and tries to defend him when he's being captured, he says, Peter, put up thy sword into the sheath, uh, the cup which my father hath given to me, shall I not drink it? So although he, of course, uh, doesn't want to be crucified in some sense, he has a reaction against that, he really wants more to be submitted to the Logos. That, In fact, that's who he is, that he's supposed to be the incarnation of Logos. So yes, although he doesn't necessarily want the cup, he will absolutely drink it if his father has given it for him. Um, So that is sort of the example uh, that's given by him. 
Now, Logos for the rest of us, of course, is something, you know, if we're not the incarnation of Logos, we obviously are not going to necessarily always understand what the rational order of the universe is. Or at least we, we can in some degrees. We can, you know, provide for moral behavior and things like that, but we don't always necessarily know the logic of chance and fate and things like this. Uh, you know, Heraclitus, who I said, I think I mentioned, uh, was an early influence on Stoics. He, he was sort of before Stoics, but um, in one of his fragments, he says this, Although this Logos is eternally valid, yet men are unable to understand it, not only before hearing it, but even after they have heard it for the first time. That is to say, although all living things come to pass in accordance with this Logos, this rational order, uh, men seem to be quite without any experience of it at least if they are judged in the light of such words and deeds that I am here setting forth. Okay, it's, it's sort of uh, sounds similar to John chapter 1, 5, where, they, uh, where the gospel writer John says, And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Where light is actually used as a, an equivalent for logos. That actually is another motif. We'll talk about that in a second when we're talking about Gnosticism. But the light versus dark duality in the gospel of John is another thing worth talking about. Um, but Logos is something that, you know, for a normal human, the thing you have to understand is that human reason, okay, although uh, human reason is just a small subcomponent of Logos, which is divine reason, the divine uh, order behind the universe. And we can never fully understand the, the true essence of it, okay? So that means in real life that we have to have a kind of stoicism. We have to realize... Um, oh, well, you know, I don't always know what's necessarily best. I'm going to do what's morally right. I'm going to uh, be stoic whenever something bad or sometimes when something good happens. And that sort of is the ideal behavior for a stoic and uh, arguably for uh, a Christian in this understanding as well. Again, like it, it's like the metaphor of the dog being drugged by a cart, right? So you can either go with it or you can go with Logos, or you can have a bad time, you know, living with your own vices. That is the worldview that's uh, sort of shown here. Now, there is one important difference where the Gospel writer of John, the Gospel writer John differs from, I, I guess, Stoicism. And that is, uh, Stoicism, usually, of course, they talk about Logos, they talk about the rational order of the universe. Uh, but another word for Logos um, in early writing is the Greek word cosmos, cosmos, you know, uh, which of course we have in English, we understand that to mean like the universe or something like that. Uh, but John's gospel writer actually does not like this word, okay? Or at least Jesus in the gospel of John, this isn't necessarily the case in the other gospels, like there, you know, there are a couple passages that sort of seem like this, but all over the gospel of John, Jesus makes the distinction between those who are of Christ or those who are of Logos and those who are of the world or, you know, cosmos in the original. So it just to give you a sampling. I mean, there are like literally dozens of verses like this in, in John, whereas they don't exist in other gospels. But just to read a couple in chapter seven, verse seven, the world cannot hate you, uh, but it hated, uh, but me it hateth because I testify of it that the works thereof, that is of the world, are evil. In chapter 12, he that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world, in this cosmos, shall keep it unto life eternal. Okay, chapter 15, if the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. Uh, or, and in chapter 17, I have given them thy word, uh, and the word hath hated them, because they are not of this world, uh, even uh, as I am not of this world. Okay, 
so there's this sort of distinction between the Logos and the Cosmos, which is a, a Christian distinction. It doesn't necessarily exist, at least to my knowledge. There might be someone else who distinguishes this. Um, but for Christians, of course, there is a there is divine uh, the divine order, and then there's a worldly order, which is I guess in an ideal world would be uh, in or in line with the divine order, but it's not necessarily like that. Okay, now this is a pretty important distinction, right? Because uh, it really sets up what is talked about as the kingdom of heaven in a lot of the gospels, right? So there's a kingdom of heaven, and there's the kingdoms of this world, right? Now, it, one thing that's important to remember, like, uh, you know, a lot of the reasons that uh, Jews came to reject Jesus is because they were expecting uh, a king within the cosmos, a, a military, sometimes political king, uh, a messiah who would come and save them within their temporal struggles, their political struggles, which at the time were, okay, they were ruled by the Romans. So there were a lot of expectations at that time that if there were a messiah, and of course there were other messiah claimants at that period who actually did uh lead uh you know around the year 70 of course there was a big uh revolt that actually got you know jews massively killed by the romans and the temple destroyed um and a, a lot of people most jews at that time of course expected the messiah to be something like that right um now jesus of course did not do that and the message of the gospel so to speak is actually very different from that expectation it is one of a divine logos it's one of you know basically it's this okay the, the real victory is not a victory against uh something temporal or some kind of worldly enemy it's really uh jesus sets the example of what ideal ethical behavior is he shows us the logos he or that he is the logos and the real victory is the victory against sin which happens in individuals Okay, and that is something that later goes on to me to, to bring the world within, uh, you know, that brings the world within God's order. But that is not it's not a not necessarily a military conquest. It's sort of the original subversion of expectations. That is the the battle happens within you, not outside. It's not it's not a top down struggle. It's something that, you know, uh, the the new covenant, so to speak, as they call it is, uh, you know, something that basically amounts to human self-improvement by the grace of God. Uh, and eventually, uh, Logos is achieved. More people have gotten closer to the divine ideal, okay? And th again, this is very different. Like, a, a lot of people look at the Old and the New Testament, and they say, oh, well, they both have, you know, moral uh, standards that we have to keep to. Uh, but there, there's a little bit of a difference. I mean, if you look at Levitical law in the Old Testament, I mean, really, most of that is actually political law. It's, you know, how do you run a society? What do you do if this happens or if someone do, does this? You know, you have to stone someone for doing this or that or something like that. That doesn't necessarily invit, uh, exist in the New Testament. And it's not because, you know, a lot of the things in the Old Testament are just not sins in the New Testament or something like that. But the priority of the New Testament is a kind of introspection. You know, Jesus says, uh, you know, don't don't look at the... the, the um, speck in your neighbor's eye if you have a log in your own that is your obligation you know the new testament does not give you a formula for political management it gives you a formula for uh victory and sin in an individual's life and in essence you live up to that stoic ideal at the same time Stoicism, of course, is not actually the only pagan philosophy that's at play here. Now, I will, I do want to make one more note, though, okay, before I even go on to that. 
Um, notice, th th okay, there's this straw idea out there that uh, before Christianity, what people believed in is, you know, a bunch of hokey gods. They believed in Jupiter and Minerva, or, well, you know, the Greek equivalents, uh, and they believed that those were the forces of the universe, okay? But the reality is if you look into the actual philosophical school, like, the you know, people in public would believe in things like that. They would talk about, you know, gods as being, you know, there being dozens of gods. But if you look at actual philosophers, um, they usually have something that's closer to believing in monotheism and believing in one god. Um, as a parallel, if you look at India, okay, India gives us an example of one of the only polytheistic religions that's practiced at a, a you know at a huge scale. Okay, Hinduism, of course, stereotypically has millions of gods, maybe more more gods than pra uh, practicers. But if you actually really look into Hindu philosophy, um, generally the interpretation is that all of those gods are just reflections of one core essence. They're all reflections of Brahma. Um, and the interpretation of that might be different in different schools. But the idea is that all of these gods sort of reflect some you know, higher oneness uh, of God. And of course, Hindus, Hindus who are philosophically informed will speak about God, you know, capital G God, as one thing, in the same way that, you know, a Muslim or a Christian might. So the idea, I, I think a lot of people try and make this really rigid distinction between monotheism and polytheism. Um, it, it really is just, uh, it, it's not as firm as people think. And in the West, that is true as well. If you look at especially the writings that were happening around the time of Christ, uh, if you look at Ovid's Metamorphoses, there's this little creation story at the beginning, and he's very ambivalent exactly who created the world. He, he said something like, well, God created the world. And it doesn't go into specific names, and the gods themselves come out later. You know, there, there's this idea, and, and again, all these philosophical schools, Stoics believed ultimately in one divine uh, essence, the Logos. In the same way that uh, Neoplatonists, who came around uh, around the same time as Orthodox Christianity, they believed in one, you know, the one, as they call it, as Plotinus called it. They believed in one God behind them all. And it, actually, Plotinus believed in a trinity. That is a trinity of the one, the intellect or the logos, and soul, which is you know, you could probably actually think of the spirit, uh, similar concepts, and well, I don't know, maybe I'll talk about those later. Um, but when you look at it in that perspective, Christianity is not necessarily that different from the pagan philosophies at this period. It's not as if there is some hostile takeover of some alien religion. Christianity fits you know, there's a lot of compatibility. A lot of these people who were writing pagan philosophies could also read Christian philosophies and understand that. Uh, and again, the Gospel of John, that statement, in the beginning was the word, makes no sense to us. It makes lots of sense in that period. Um, but anyway, one other pagan philosophy that's definitely worth talking about, especially with the Gospel of John, is what's called Gnosticism. So Gnosticism comes from the Greek word for gnosis. Gnosis means knowledge, okay? And Gnostics were seeking after the knowledge ultimately that the physical world is evil, okay? So Gnostics were influenced by Platonism. So Plato, of course, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if guys know. I don't know if this is common knowledge, but so Plato, Plato basically believed that, okay, there's the material world, 
But the material world is actually a pale reflection of reality. There is really a reality of forms, of ideas. Um, and, and of course, when I say ideas, don't necessarily think something in your mind. I mean, there is some kind of greater, maybe spiritual reality where the true essence of things are. And the world that we live in is a pale reflection of that. I mean, you, you might remember uh, Plato's cave, the parable of Plato's cave, where Plato says, what if you had a bunch of people and you raised them in a cave and they were looking at shadows of things and they were just chained there and they could only look at the wall, okay? That, his 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 view is basically that's how we are, okay? We're only seeing pale reflections of reality. Now, Gnostics took that one step further. They said, okay, we are in, the material world is a pale reflection of reality, but it's also evil. Gnostics believed that although God created the entire universe, there is uh, a deviant creature, um, which is somewhat analogous to Lucifer, Satan, or the devil, um, the they called him the Demiurge, but Gnostics believe that, okay, well, the world is actually created by this Demiurge character, okay, and therefore the world is actually evil, all right, and there were many Christian Gnostics at this period. They eventually lost, uh, you know, they, it, as time went on, um, if you look at John's epistles and uh, other writings, you actually see that, uh, you know, they, they're mentioned as antichrists, they're mentioned as people who deny that the world was created through Christ, that deny that, uh, you know, he became flesh, you know, and stuff like that. Because Gnostics basically believed that, uh, in fact, Gnostics even wrote some gospels, okay, at least we have fragments of them. We might have a full Gnostic gospel, but they, of course, they were writing these gospels quite a bit later than um, the gospels we have were written, but some of them depict Jesus as, uh, uh, you know, Jesus being crucified and his spirit is just standing by watching everyone laughing, you know, saying, oh, well, you're just killing my material form. That doesn't really matter. Um, that's the Gnostic philosophy. Gnostics ultimately believed that the world was evil, okay? Now, Christians, if you look at the theology of, of uh, the Gospel of John, they don't necessarily think the world per se is evil. Of course, God created the world and the world was good. That's what Genesis says. Um, but they do think that there is this cosmos, there is this worldly order that is not necessarily the same as the divine order, as we mentioned. So Gnosticism was sometimes a temptation for Christians who wanted this more platonic, uh, Gnostic way of looking at the world. Um, but as time went on, uh, the Gnostics lost out. There are some inconsistencies with the Bible. Uh, you know, again, it, it's hard to believe that the, God created the world and the world is good, um, if that's what you believe. But Gnostics sometimes actually ended up rejecting the entire Old Testament. They're like, nah, that's something, that's, uh, that's something different. Um, but uh, anyway, so that, that gives you sort of a feel for the intellectual environment at the time. Uh, so Christianity was not necessarily a, an interloper in any of these viewpoints. It was something that sort of worked off of uh, and was very compatible with philosophies at the time, although they often butted heads. Um, one other little metaphor that's shared between at least the Gospel of John and Gnosticism is the metaphor of light and darkness, right? I, th I think I quoted from early in the Gospel of John where... Um, he speaks about, you know, the light shines in darkness and the darkness didn't understand it or something like that. Um, now, that might seem like a very common metaphor, but it's only common because it was popularized around this period. It's not necessarily even used in other Gospels. It's used in John. It was actually a common Gnostic metaphor. 
Um, but it's also used among the Essenes. If you look in the, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls and stuff like that, a lot of early philosophical texts, uh, including Hermetic texts as well, will we'll occasionally talk about you know, there being a distinction between uh, light and dark. That's a common metaphor, you know, between knowledge and lack of knowledge or truth and lies. All of those are used very commonly by John. That's why it's a, a sort of a more philosophical gospel than the other ones. You actually compare it, you know, for those who don't know, like the other three gospels are usually called the synoptic gospels. Um, and that's because they sort of give the same synopsis of one big story. The Gospel of John doesn't differ terribly, but, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're sort of more focused on Jesus healing people. And, uh, you know, the general consensus is that Matthew and Luke both read Mark and uh, took texts, basically took passages from it, uh, whereas John is probably independently composed. Uh, but that's just details. That's not for today. I'm just rambling at this point. So let's review a little bit, and I'm going to draw this episode to a close. Now, you may have noticed that, although this is an episode of Not Related, I have not read donations and questions this episode. And the only reason that is is because I'm thinking about doing that in separate episodes now. Um, so I think in a couple days we will have an episode, a, a kind of review episode of the Fiera Band one, and I'll go over comments and questions, and I'll talk about other things. might be a little more casual than a usual episode. Um, but I, I just want to get, I, I want to do those separately, I, I guess. And I might stick with that. I might go back to the original. But um, so let's do a little review of what we learned. So again, a lot of these passages in the Bible actually make sense within their original context that has sort of been lost to time. Okay. And they are often in that sort of original Greco-Roman environment, the a pagan environment. It sounds weird to say that, but they were part of a, a wider philosophical um, I, I guess, view of the world uh, going on here. So Christianity, as I mentioned, I did mention in passing, I think, um, the notion of the Trinity and how's that, how that is related to Neoplatonism uh, and some other philosophies as well. Uh, but here we talk mostly about Logos and Stoicism. So both for Stoics and for Christians, the ideal is not just moral behavior, but the ability to look at the things that we don't understand about the world and be okay with them. Even, of course, if we are going to be, uh, you know, if you see things around you that you cannot control, they are a part of Logos, they're going somewhere, there is some kind of goal to the universe, both uh, Stoics and Christians believe that, maybe in different forms. Um, Christians, of course, additionally have a distinction between the Logos and the world, the cosmos. That is, there is an evil order in this world. That's not to say that the world is evil like the Gnostics think, but there's an evil order in this world. We live in a fallen world, and part of the, the gospel message is reorient, reorienting this world, which eventually will pass away, but reorienting this world with divine Logos, right? So anyway, that this has been an episode of Not Related, part Bible study this time. Um, if you have any questions, send them to Luke at LukeSmith.xyz uh, or LukeSmith or yeah, LukeSmith.xyz slash donate to donate, and I read donations in uh, you know the next episode or whenever I do donation reviews. So that's about it. Hope you learned something.